0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today in my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, we discuss her new book entitled America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and Black rebellions since the 1960s. The title is currently out with Live Right Press, and at present, Dr. Elizabeth Hinton is an associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of African American Studies at Yale, with a secondary appointment as professor of law at Yale Law School. In America on Fire, Hinton asserts the significance of Black rebellions in post-civil rights America, arguing that the riots were indeed rebellions or political acts in response to the failures and unfulfilled promises of the civil rights period. She investigates an overlooked compendium of black uprisings emanating from poor and working class black neighborhoods, towns, and cities, often sparked by police terror between 1964 and 1972. In refuting the racist pathologies that community violence has been assigned by commissions, politicians, liberals and conservatives alike, Hinton presents a redefinition through the analytic of rebellion that should change the way we understand resistance to anti-Black racism and policing today. We will discuss this and more in our interview. Dr. Hinton, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I'm really excited to talk to you about the book.
0: Yeah, I can't wait. With that, let's jump into our first question. Can you tell us about yourself and your journey to history, uh, your journey to African-American studies, um, and perhaps how you approach the work or the mandate of Black Studies today?
1: So I think, I mean, especially as a Black person in America, I mean, history and wanting to know and understand our history and where I came from and the sacrifices that the ancestors made have always just been a part of who I am. I used to listen I was younger to stories that my grandparents, Big Papa and Big Mama, um, would tell about the Jim Crow South and about, um, you know, why they came to Saginaw, Michigan um, in the 1940s, like so many others as part of the, the Great Migration and the, the white uh, terrorism that they faced um, in Columbus, Georgia, um, that pushed them to go. And I was just always really fascinated by that. Um, And then, you know, I'm a old millennial, I was born in 1983, and coming of age in the 80s and 90s, kind of at the height of the war on drugs, and as mass incarceration was really taking off, just had a profound impact on my childhood, especially seeing the ways in which drug abuse and criminalization and incarceration played out within my own family. Um, And It wasn't until so as an undergraduate, you know, I was really and even, you know, in high school, I was just always really interested in black history, like understanding slavery, understanding the black power movement. And uh, as an undergraduate, I uh, I majored in or my concentration was in uh, it was called basically like the it, it was a focus on it was American studies with a focus on the experience of people of African descent. In the Western Hemisphere, and um, you know, this was—it was just always where my my interests lied, um, and and trying to understand to the kind of enduring inequality in the 20th century U.S. Um, and but it wasn't until graduate school when I started visiting family members in prison. Um, so this was in the, the mid-2000s. I mean, I think, you know, as, as passionate as I was about the, the kind of rise of policing and especially incarceration um, that I witnessed through my childhood, I still, like so many of us, I think especially in that period, felt a lot of shame um, about my family who was in prison. Um, and it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I started actually visiting people um, first in uh, at High Desert State Prison in Susanville, California. And when I walked into the visiting room, just seeing just generations of mostly black and brown men, uh, you know, there interacting with their kids, undergoing the process of, and myself undergoing the process of criminalization that happens when you go to visit someone in prison. It was just, um, it was just, <laughs> it was really maddening and um, and upsetting and also somewhat puzzling to me because this was happening at a time when mass incarceration wasn't a buzzword. You know, this was in 2005, so well before Michelle Alexander's book had come out. And I really wanted to, you know, then as a graduate student at Columbia with all the resources and privileges at my disposal, I just felt like, you know, the best thing for me to do with my work and my research skills would be to try to understand how we got how we got here. Um, so in many ways, you know, the my interest in the history of mass criminalization post civil rights grew out of my own uh, background and experiences. And then also just the gap, you know, at that time, and that I think still exists in the historiography where, you know we had this we had a growing and rich literature on the black power movement and civil rights organizations in the in the 60s and 70s but we didn't really have a sense of the kind of policies that the policies that emerged post civil rights that that um, that in some ways exacerbated inequality or that uh, that brought about different, different kinds of racial regimes. Um, and, and I, and I saw that I saw, I increasingly began to see, uh, neoliberal social policy and the rise of crime control policy beginning in the sixties as a kind of bridge to understand those larger dynamics.
0: Right. Which is, uh, definitely what your, your first book, uh, from the war on poverty to the war on crime, um, uh, touches on or is central to it. Um, so, how did you come to write uh, this? This is your second book, "America on Fire: The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s."
1: So, in many ways, you know, this book grew out of questions and research that I did in the first book. I mean, one of the things that I that I argue in the in the first book is that the war on crime was not in response to, as the story had been told, um, rising crime rates. But mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, the threat of black rebellion, I mean, again, at, at the time that I that I started doing the research for the book, uh, the narrative was that, you know, ma- that mass incarceration was the was kind of a, or, or crime control policies were an electoral were just an electoral tactic that Republicans used to shore up fears among white voters and being tough on crime kind of, you know, what was was this uh, campaign thing and that, you know, the 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 kind of aggressive policing measures and mass incarceration were really like the product of the evil Reagan administration. And mm-hmm. so, you know, part of the big intervention in the book is pushing us back to the height of the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. uh, and and liberal social policy in the in the mid nineteen sixties. And in doing so, we see very clearly the ways in which the uh, Lyndon Johnson's call for the war on crime and the expansion and militarization of police forces in low-income communities of color was very much in response to the threat of Black rebellion, the threat that the militant um, turn and and kind of the, the collective political violent turn within the mainstream civil rights movement posed to uh, to American institutions. And so, you know, that was a really important, uh, framing of the way that I present the history in the first book. And then, you know, when I was doing the research, I mean, I kept on seeing these like rebellions, these acts of political violence continuing into the 1970s. I mean, one of the assumptions or another assumption, um, Within the historiography, and that I myself am guilty of uh, of reinforcing in from the war on poverty, to the war on crime, is that, you know, the the age of rebellion starts in 1964 in Harlem, after a 15-year-old black high school student is killed by a New York City police officer, and then we kind of get these, you know, like huge uh, galvanizing, in many ways, moments during the long, hot summer of 1967 in Newark and Detroit. And then a hundred some cities erupt after Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. And that's kind of like the last hurrah of, um, of this form of violent protest. And, um, and I kept on seeing these rebellions popping up. So I knew that something was going on and I was interested in that and the ways in which the Nixon administration was, was responding to this continued collective violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't really include it in the book. And I was at a, uh, in the summer of 2016, early summer 2016. So shortly after, uh, from the war on poverty, the war on crime came out, I was at a barbecue at my dear friend and mentor, Heather Ann Thompson's house in Detroit. And Mm -hmm. Um, a newly arrived faculty member in the Department of Political Science named Christian Davenport was there, and Christian was getting ready to do, again, you know, this was 2016, so he was preparing for um, a retrospective that he was planning uh, to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the Detroit Rebellion, And, and he and I started talking, and I said, you know, have you, you know, there were there were more uh, rebellions in the Detroit area, you know, after that into the 70s. Like, have you ever encountered any, anything like this? And he, he said, I happen to have um, this archive in my possession that that indeed shows um, mm-hmm. how prevalent this this form of violence was. And he said, you should come to my office and take a look. And Christian had the records of the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence in his possession, which was um, a research think tank that formed shortly after John F. Kennedy Jr. was assassinated. And the and it was housed at Brandeis. And the Lemberg researchers basically conducted quantitative uh, studies and oral histories, but mostly um, gathered local newspaper clippings from, you know, small and big and midsize and rural um, mm-hmm. cities across the country documenting all kinds of forms of violence in the United States um, through the 60s and early 70s. So not just Black rebellions, but also um, student protests, the anti-war movement, labor violence. They really were trying to understand, um, you know, the nature of protests and violent conflict in the United States. And, you so I went to Christian's office, and he presented me with with these boxes that I just started digging through. And I and before me was this like treasure trove was this amazingly rich history that we hadn't seen. That like in part because this archive. I mean, and this is like another reason why it's so important that to to. to keep records and to make them available to the public. I mean, this archive had essentially been passed down from one political scientist to another. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to be able to access it. I mean, you know, I've asked myself a lot, um, if, you know, like this story, these stories would have probably been able to be told much earlier had these local newspaper clippings been made public. I mean, now I think it's easier mm-hmm. to get into these local sources through things like newspapers.com, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and ProQuest, but these are newspapers that aren't even on those databases. And wow. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, I mean this, um, and, and even for the book, like I went to newspapers.com too, to like, um, which, which wasn't around, uh, it wasn't as accessible when I was, um, doing the research for the first book to like either, Complement more of these stories, or to find other ones. Um, but, but, but this. So it, the 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 piece of of the Lemberg archive that just kind of clicked for me was that these this was the story. These stories were the ways in which residents, and not in big cities, right? I mean, most of the records or the, the newspaper clippings in the archive are from smaller and mid sized cities that we don't often talk about. But the ways in which Black residents were responding to the expansion and militarization of police during the early years of the war on crime, and so the surprising finding that um, that the the, the newspaper clippings showed, but also that that Christian, who who um, as part of his radical information project at the University of Michigan, is conducting, which is a quantitative um, study of this violence, shows us that it was actually you know the rebellions peaked after the assassination of Martin Luther King. They peaked after the enactment of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which basically implemented many of the policing programs that had been more experimental during the first three years of the war on crime from 65 to 68 on on a nationwide scale. And so we see rebellion then happening much more frequently in surprising places like Carver Ranches, Florida, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, Waterloo, Iowa. As these smaller departments, now that the the, the National Crime Control Program has officially been declared, has a has a permanent place within the Department of Justice, we see Black communities responding to. Uh, to the expansion of policing and especially the policing of ordinary and everyday activity in much the same way as their counterparts in Harlem and Watts and Detroit work mm. in Washington, DC and Baltimore did earlier in the decade.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, and really giving us a, a, a more national story or a more capacious, capacious national story. Um, so what can you, let's go back to this treasure trove. <laughs> what can you tell us about the experience of doing the research and writing for this book? I remember like I spoke with you a few years ago about your experience doing the research for your first book. And I remember you saying that time slipped away um, in the in the policy archives, like the hours just went by and you didn't even realize. Um, how, how do you think about... Um, uh, that experience compared to what it was like to go through um, the, this archive?
1: That was a very, so, you know, the research for the first book came from the White House central files of, uh, or the bulk of the primary sources, the, the central files of every presidential administration from Kennedy through Reagan. And um, I think, you know, I mean, and that was at the national, you know, through the national archives and a much more traditional, archival research experience where, you know, I went, um, relatively slowly. I worked with archivists. I was declassifying documents. I was, I was discovering and uncovering a new narrative, um, and working with sources. I mean, I guess, you know, similar to, um, the Lemberg archive that, that hadn't been used before. Although like some of the Nixon sources I used, um, at that time were, were completely um, untouched. The Lemberg ones had been, you know, shared among a, a small group of of researchers. I think the the nature of the or the 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 kind of the the kind the types of documents I was using were also very different, right? Because I'm in in the with the federal you know with the federal archives, I'm using um, memos and policy reports and notes that people are writing to each other and trying to construct a narrative through that. Um, and then with the Lemberg, I mean, I'm primarily using newspaper accounts. So I'm having, so it's a different set of, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, what's getting left out of these memos, what's going on behind the scenes, how can I read, um, you know, the, the kind of the way that racism is operating here between the lines versus like, how, how can I piece together, understand a story, um, that's being told or being filtered through reporters. And how, how can I then, um, try to reconstruct what's going on, uh, through their bias? I mean, you know, in both cases, just like, just like for all historians, we're kind of limited by, um, whatever, like scraps of, um, Scraps of information, or or the the people who are constructing the documents that we're using, you know what they choose to share. But there's definitely something different about trying to make sense of the of a newspaper account and trying to weigh, you know, what's there and what's not versus a a policy document, especially um, among people working in a presidential administration. I think. You know, because the 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 primary difference too is that the newspapers themselves lend them lend um, lend themselves much more to a a straightforward narrative, um, whereas the policy documents you know there are details provided in the articles, um, in the Lemberg archives that are not in the, um, of course in in the White House Center Files, like what people were wearing and 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 what streets looked like and, and, and rich quotes from, um, from actors involved that, that I think helped to create, um, a really compelling narrative, but, but also then obscure some of the, um, the larger kind of socioeconomic factors that might be more, might be easier to grasp in a, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a policy-based archive.
0: Right, right. Um, I want to also uh, just take a moment, because it's important, really important, the, to make a mention of the, the timeline, uh, the 25-page timeline that you include in the back of the book um, that uh, denotes kind of all of the rebellions, just lists, lists all of the rebellions that um, occur in the 60s and early 1970s. Um, do you want to say anything about why you decided to include this?
1: Yeah. So, and and again, like that, I mean, just like the book itself, I mean, that timeline would not have been possible without Christian's mm-hmm. research. Um, you know, that, I mean, we worked together to, to clean up some of the data and, you know, the, and fact check um, every single one of those 2,000 cities. But, um, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't, it would not have been possible without um, Christian's work to quantify the Lemberg Center archives. I mean, for me, it was really exciting because I got to, um, to lay bare my data. And I was really thankful to Live right for allowing me to include it. So, you know, not only is the data there just showing this completely um, forgotten, hidden, misunderstood chapter in American history and in the Black freedom struggle. But I think, you know, for me, the goal is to, is to open up uh new avenues of research and new avenues of research for scholars, but then also within the uh the cities and towns where rebellions occurred, new discussions to help um communities better come to terms with police violence and 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 racism um and exclusionary practices in the past and the way that those inform the future i mean i think one of the, the power of the timeline is that it shows you know that that like we're all implicated in this mm-hmm. history it's not like we can just say oh well that's minneapolis that's george floyd you know that's that's louisville kentucky that's brianna taylor no this is all of us and i bet that uh that most readers um have lived in at some point, you know, at least one of the cities mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, in the, in the book's timeline. So I I think it just gives all of us a different, a different kind of stake in this history and, and makes clear and really disrupts the, you know, the, the narratives that we tell that police violence is relegated to big cities and big Northern cities in particular. Um, and Mm -hmm. that, and, and also this narrative that the, um, you know that the the southern civil rights movement was completely nonviolent and um and and the northern one was militant and violent it also uh really you know i mean this is again an argument that i make in the book that i hope comes through in the book but there's something about just when you look at the timeline and you see you know that this is occurring from like Oregon to you know Arkansas to Alabama to uh to massachusetts and connecticut i mean it's just it's it's everywhere and it's part Mm -hmm. of all of our histories
0: for sure yeah it's ubiquitous and, and that definitely comes through i like the i like the form i like the list format um you know i think we're as scholars we're so used to just you know reading uh but this is effective um when it's written out like this um So let's talk about the first chapter. The first chapter introduces readers to what you call the cycle of police violence and community responses to the violence of policing, which is further exacerbated by municipal and federal neglect. Um, Can you tell us more about the cycle?
1: Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a key interpretive frame in the book. And I think, um, is is one of the lessons that that we should learn today. I mean, there's a that, that we can take from the book. There's a there's a pattern in in all in, in all of these rebellions, but one that 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 plays out really explicitly in the the era of rebellion or the crucible period of rebellion from uh, you know May 1968, so after the MLK assassination through 1972, and that's that um, as as Policing is expanding as a result of these new, you know, these hundreds of millions of dollars or what's it's what's equivalent to several billion in today's dollars in federal grants that are hitting these smaller cities. And coupled by the strategy of crime war programs, which are completely preemptive, and this is something that I talk about in the first book, that is that they're not they're not based in response to actual crime, but they're based in response to trying to stop potential crime from potentially happening, potential criminals, and potential rioters. I mean, this is even, you know, the, the potential criminal category, mm-hmm. is, you know, is became a legislative category that, um, that, that lawmakers, uh, that, that, that steered lawmakers strategies for the war on crime from the Johnson administration onward. So, you know, here you begin to see the, the kind of policing of ordinary everyday activity, a group of kids uh, playing in a park and and getting arrested, police officers intervening to try to break up a fight among a group of, of teenagers, um, parties in black neighborhoods, and especially at housing projects, getting broken up by police. And residents clearly experienced these interventions as, as violent. Um, and responded to this these acts of policing, these acts of police violence, not by saying, "Oh, you know, thank you for helping to keep our community safer. Thank you for arresting um, a group of twelve year olds for seemingly no reason." They responded to these acts of police violence with with violence, and usually mm-hmm. this involved initially. Um, I mean, the vast majority of rebellions during this period initially began with with people throwing rocks and bottles at police. And of course, police were outnumbered um, in these situations. And so when the rock and bottle throwing phase began, they would often retreat and then call for backup. And then more officers would arrive on the scene, um, usually with the the new uh, military grade uh, riot gear and weapons um, funded by the federal government. And as the police retreated, more residents would come out and the police would then, you know, start tear gassing or beating people and residents in turn would tended to respond, um, by attacking officers back. Or sometimes, you know, the, the rebellion would, um, draw in, you know, more members of the community. If they, if it started out with like 10 kids, then it could quickly escalate to 50 or hundreds of people. Um, And depending on the 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 police response, then uh, could then escalate further into burning buildings and institutions and um, and looting stores. And the police would tear gas people, beat people, make mass arrests, and impose curfews. And this cycle of police violence would play out um, or could play out for several days. I mean, it didn't it didn't always have a you know some rebellions lasted for a week or weeks. Some lasted for a night or two, some several hours. Um, but the lesson that we draw, that we can draw from this is that police violence precipitates community violence, that it's not the other way around. I mean, the, the, the narrative is that, you know, that that residents just start attacking police and then police respond. Um, and, you know, when we actually look at how these rebellions play out and the the kind of this, the, the broad similarities between them, they're always in response to Forms of police violence. And, and so that's the kind of, that's the, the literal cycle of rebellion. But then there's also a policy cycle that we're mm. kind of stuck in because, and this is where the terminology here is really important, because in ignoring the larger socioeconomic root causes of this form of political violence and labeling them riot, riots, labeling them criminal, the, the solution then becomes um, more police. The solution then becomes the very thing that that residents are Protesting in the first place, and so we've been stuck in this um, in this policy cycle of the continued and perpetual expansion of the carceral state of policing, surveillance, and prisons, um, which ha- have evolved and became. We see it playing out, you know, which end up becoming a criminogenic force in itself um, mm-hmm. in the communities when the solution. Um, you know, is and has always been uh, to invest in institutions beyond the police to to create true public safety.
0: Indeed. And and with that, uh, we see uh, housing projects in both small towns and cities um, and how they become an important site in the book, really a focal point of Black Rebellion. So can you tell us more about this space as an archetype and the ways that built environment has historically been a landscape or a backdrop of rebellion?
1: Right. So, you know, housing projects, I mean, especially by the late sixties, you know, are really sites of concentrated poverty and um, concentrated black poverty. And the, you know, by, by, that time the conditions within housing projects although you know in the post-war period were kind of um, you know seen as a, a, a really desirable um, home for black families many of you know whom even in the you know 1940s didn't have indoor plumbing um, didn't have heat and hot water it seemed as like a step up but you know the the kind of combination of um, neglect on the part of housing authorities coupled by uh, continued uh, socioeconomic inequalities and racial discrimination, you know, really turned housing projects into a um, a hotbed of, of of poverty and a space that could be um, both easily policed but also conducive to collective violence. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the thing, and this is kind of flashing forward, but um, you know, do I, I've been on a number of ride-alongs with um with Los Angeles police officers. And, you know, one of the things that they do on the beat, those those in South LA is like they'll just show up to housing projects. You know, they'll just drive up to housing projects because they know like that is a site. If they can't, if there's not a call, if they can't find someone, that's a site where they know poor black people live. Again, where there are likely to be potential crimes happening or potential incidents of violence. Um, happening and Mm -hmm. the the unique design of housing projects themselves. I mean, the the alleyways, um, Mm -hmm. high rise projects like in Chicago, for instance, um, in the Robert Taylor Homes in Cabrini Green. I mean, when officers showed up in the courtyard, uh, people, snipers um, could and did, you know, shoot shoot at officers from their windows saying, you know, we don't want you policing our community. Um, one, Mm -hmm. one really interesting story emerged in Stockton, California, um, where I've also done a great, a good deal of research and, um, have, have worked with police department doing ride-alongs and other things there. Um, but (laughs) in, in July, 1968 residents after a, um, a house party in the, in the housing project was broken up, ended up essentially kidnapping, um, to police officers in the community gymnasium, leading to several nights of rebellion and the burning of a police car. Um, mm. But but housing projects in particular, I mean, I, I just think are are such a are such a symbol and a site um, where you know police officers know <laughs> um, that that they they can surely make arrests that they can they can effectively surveil and monitor. Um, groups of, of black residents. And, and they're also, I mean, especially, you know, by the, by the late 1960s, just profound uh, symbols of, of, of racial inequality and, um, Mm -hmm. and, and socioeconomic disparities.
0: Absolutely. Um, Let's turn next to vigilante's Um, And you have a chapter that uh, conceptualizes vigilantes beyond the lone wolf vigilante um, and in terms of the individual framework we think of it in today. Um, You resituate readers in an evolution of white supremacist groupings from the white mobs of the early 20th century who led racial terror and lynchings. um, And you examine these post-civil rights formations um, such as white supremacist community organizations that wage war on black residents while defending and building alliances with police. Um, can you tell us about this and how black residents
1: responded? Yeah, so I think one, you know one really important dynamic that's also happening um you know, in this kind of civil rights post-civil rights period is that the police are increasingly, as 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 American policing expands, police forces are, increasingly assuming the previous functions of the white mob and Mm -hmm. white supremacist organizations are also evolving, um, you know, from the, uh, the, the lower class people who are typically associated with like clan membership to a more like genteel, um, group that's, that's now, uh, kind of harboring, uh, white supremacist organizations in many, Towns and not just in the southern states, but um, but in the north and the Midwest and the West as well. So so you know, white supremacy becomes more entrenched within the kind of political and economic establishment in many cities, and um, and and also you know as you mentioned, deeply entangled as it has been historically, but deeply entangled with the police and and in the places where um, this relationship between the kind of white establishment white supremacist organizations and the and, and law enforcement was particularly acute is where we see the most, uh, kind of destructive and dramatic, uh, rebellions. So, you know, one is in, um, York, Pennsylvania in, um, uh, mm-hmm. in 1969, which, which is, you know, arguably the most destructive, um, uh, rebellion of, of the era, given the size of the community where essentially the police department, um, handed out bullets to various, uh, white power gangs in the city who terrorized the black community of York, um, for, for two weeks. And the city essentially broke out into, um, into severe racial conflict, um, uh, during, during that, that summer and then the longest mm-hmm. uh, rebellion itself happened in uh a small town called Cairo Illinois at the southernmost tip of um of the state which you know might as well in many ways even though you know it's 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 a city in Illinois but it might as well have been the south and essentially um the you know black residents in the town were just were there were about 3000 uh, black residents in a Town that was just over six thousand people, and essentially, um, you know, the the white power structure was deeply implicated in in uh, the white vigilante groups and deputized thousands of white men to uh, inflict various acts of uh, mm-hmm. of of terror and horror, frankly, in the lives of of black residents from um, essentially March nineteen sixty nine, when a group of white men began. Um, shooting into the, um, all black pyramid courts housing project, uh, from the Mississippi levee, um, through 1972. And, um, and black residents both fought back through the conventional, um, kind of direct action channels by, um, by boycotting the the white stores in, in Cairo. I mean, black residents, there were essentially locked out of, of political power. Um, they, you know, most, the vast majority were unemployed. They could not um, find consistent work. There was no political representation. Um, And the residents, Black residents in Cairo began to organize and say, we're not going to continue to patronize these white stores so that people that, you know, these vigilantes can buy bullets to shoot at us. So they launched a boycott and they also armed themselves in in self-defense and began to fight back because, I mean, what other options that do you have when you have no political resource, mm-hmm. recourse whatsoever. And, you know, these white vigilantes completely supported by, you know, the political and economic institutions of the city are literally, you know, shooting into your apartments every night and you have absolutely no protection. And the Cairo story is one that weaves, um, you know, through many chapters of the book and I think is exceptional in many ways because of the violence Um but also, you know, is, is a warning to all of us about the, <laughs> the 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 ways in which you know racism, that, that white supremacy, or that white supremacists, um, the lengths that white supremacists will go to preserve their power, and mm-hmm. um, and and kind of the, the the way that racism works in America. Because rather than give give any concessions to the black residents of Cairo, um, mm-hmm. the the, the white establishment essentially decided to let the political and economic infrastructure of the town completely collapse. I mean, the boycott was successful in closing, um, you know, 17 of the white owned businesses in, in the, in Cairo's downtown and anyone and everyone who could, uh, who had the means to leave Cairo did, um, and mm-hmm. the, town, the economy of the t- the town tanked as a result. And so, you know, it's really, it's a win to all of us that, you know, that, What happens when white supremacy trumps everybody else's well well well-being um Mm
0: -hmm. right and i hope that we can talk more about the kind of like the death of of caro um uh, a little bit later um in uh well in your chapter about snipers you kind of uh track the state's paranoia and frenzy about the murderous black sniper and you show how it becomes a justification for building up the police weaponry of on the eve of the Safe Streets Act of 1968. And what this does is that it effectively distorts the reasons behind black rebellions. Um, and it projects this narrative that casts the police as victims. So I wanted to know. um more about how you saw the convergence of local and national media and political campaigns and accelerating these myths about the snipers, about the projects, and about community violence. Um, and I'm thinking like specifically to what you said earlier as well, uh, kind of like when you were in the actual archive itself and you're dealing with some of these newspapers, um, in what ways are these stories told or cast?
1: So this actually, I mean, you know, inadvertently picks up on what I was just talking about, about Cairo, because in the Lemberg archive, um, you know, the way that the press or the newspaper clippings that the researchers collected, cause there were others that I later discovered, but reported on Cairo was that, you know, that these, that these group, these basically group of black snipers were indiscriminately shooting at white people in the town. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so the, the, the kind of myth of the sniper becomes this way to explain, uh, and pathologize rebellion as something that was, you know, I mean, and, and in many ways the the sniper, the way the sniper was discussed kind of prefigures um, you know, the ways in which other tropes, like the super predator, is discussed, you know, somebody without you know, any kind of morals, a, a complete psychopath that's just indiscriminately shooting at white people um, and the police. And we know that, you know, sniping itself, you know, it began to be reported as a phenomenon during the Newark and Detroit rebellions of sixty-seven, but we know that it was overreported and fabricated, and actually, you know, was was used to explain many of the the deaths of civilians during rebellions at the hands of the police and the national guard. Um, mm. So, so it becomes a way to play up, uh, play up black pathology or black. Path- Pathological violence and downplay the 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 role of the um of, of state sanctioned violence and the prevalence of state sh- sanctioned violence and police terror as you um as you said, I really like that that framing um and it also yeah I, sorry I completely lost my train of thought there,
0: oh yeah, no it's just on the on the ways that some of these events are portrayed and in, in the media, um, just feeding the pathology.
1: Yeah. It becomes, it becomes the idea of the sniper becomes a real, you know, as I write in the book, like the boogeyman of, of imagination and, um, and is also, you know, very much tied into, um, the black soldiers returning from Vietnam. I mean, I think, you know, this, the, the, the connection there between, the violence in Vietnam and the violence at home, um, is very strong and is is a kind of trope that you know this idea of the sniper would not necessarily be or has not been right part of um part of of the way that we talk about um so called riots um mm-hmm.
0: yeah well let's um let's move next to the chapter called the the poisoned tree. This chapter challenges the bad apples analogy, which is often used to say that issues with policing are exceptional rather than systemic. Um, And what we see in this chapter, and actually through, it's a theme throughout all of the chapters, which is, you know, uh, all of these Black communities are uh, being terrorized by police um, and they're exhausting all options available to them. They're engaging in boycott, nonviolent protests, civil counsel advocacy, and so on. But none of these efforts prevented um, the episodic police murder of Black people, um, which caused the communities to continue rebelling. This is the cycle. Um, so, can you talk to us about one of the overarching themes of this book, which is the necessity of violence to uproot the system?
1: Yeah. So this is, um, you know, I think this is a, a kind of key thing that uh, that I think that the archive and, and that the book really helps us understand, and that's of course the the shift between or the shift from um, nonviolent direct action protests within the mainstream civil rights movement to the politics of self-defense after Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, assassination as being the, the kind of guiding principle of, um, of Black protests. And I think especially for young people um, you know, what this history shows is that rebellion was the most widely adapted form of protest. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of generational transition here is really important because, you know, young people had watched uh, the civil rights movement unfold with great promise. And, you know, by the end of the 1960s, for many, I think, especially for, for, for poor Black people, conditions had changed little and despite the commitment to nonviolence, um, you know that the changes did not come, and 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 many communities felt they had no other recourse but to turn to violent tactics in order to um, to make a change. I mean, in 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 nearly every city where rebellions occurred, it's not like this was the first form of protest. So rebellions again came after. Um, you know, nonviolent direct action demonstrations. They came after lawsuits. They came after petitions. They came after communities calling for the firing of police officers who were particularly brutal with no implementation. And in many cases, rebellions did open up new conversations and sometimes reforms, limited reforms that didn't go far enough, but reforms within communities to respond to or acknowledge the pervasiveness of racial discrimination. And so, you know, there is, um, you know, I, I urge readers to understand the ways in which both nonviolent and violent forms of protest have been central to the black freedom struggle. I mean, this is something that Martin Luther King Jr. himself recognized that like part mm-hmm. of the best of his branch of protest was, you know, rested on the course of power of violent protest should nonviolent demands not be met. And we saw, you know, this, this, the interplay between violent and nonviolent protests um, unfolding last summer during the, during the Mm -hmm. the 2020 protests um, after the murder of George Floyd, where, you know, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and demonstrations against police brutality have of course been gaining momentum since the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. But not at the scale that we saw in the summer of 2020 and not, and they didn't, um, they didn't result in the kind of national discussion. I mean, systemic racism became a buzzword. Um, and you know, corporations like Walmart (laughs) and and CVS are, you know, removing the anti-theft cases from black beauty products. I mean, it began a whole new set of conversations. And, you know, you wonder if absent the series of fires across the United States last summer, although, let me just also stress, the vast, vast majority of the protests were completely nonviolent, but absent that, the the, the those moments of violence and looting, um, if if these incidents would have galvanized the nation in the way that they did and set off the kinds of conversations that they did. I mean, of course... This is also occurring in the context of lockdowns and a global pandemic, but that's a different that's a different um, part of the story. So, you know, these forms of protest have always been entwined, and I think mm-hmm. rather than trying to ignore or downplay um, the the kind of role of violent rebellion in the Black freedom struggle, um, it's something that we must uh, begin to fully contend with and 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 also mm-hmm. the, the, with the um, with the conditions that that as, as you mentioned you know as you frame the question that that make people feel like they have no they have exhausted all options and have no choice but to take to violent tactics
0: mm-hmm. yeah I wholeheartedly agree that we need to start investigating this more as scholars um, so the schools, I love that you included the schools in this book. Um, They are another site of organizing against conditions of disinvestment and neglect. Um, And in the schools, you reveal a linkage between school administrators and the police. Anytime the students organize against conditions of schooling or even conditions in their neighborhoods, they face this executive arm of the state. Um, And this leads to police murders of innocent students like Willie Ernest Grimes. can you tell us more about the significance of schools, student rebellions, and the policing of progressive action?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think you know, again, I mean, the, the the prevalence of rebellion in schools, which is of course where most young people spend the majority of their days, you know, just underscores the extent to which rebellion, in particular, was really um, was 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 really kind of guided by this rising generation of young people, and. Um, you know the the schools were uh, a hotbed of of these kinds of activities in part because of the new uh, role that police are taking within schools, but also in part because of the ways in which um, young people had been politicized by the Black Power movement and the kind of the rising militancy in many Black communities and began to demand to use the kind of the scripts of um, of prominent Black Power organizations like the Black Panthers and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and um, and asserting the the you know demands to include Black Studies courses and to hire more Black teachers, and instead of again, I mean, this is like a mini, this is like a variant of the cycle within schools. Instead mm-hmm. of just responding, mm-hmm. saying to the kids, okay, like let's let's you know, you guys are demonstrating for this, you're holding. A sit-in at school. You're, you're, you know, you've got signs. You have a peaceful protest going on. Let's sit down and talk, and let's think about how we can um, implement a Black Studies curriculum. Let's think about how we can hire more Black teachers. School administrators uh, tended to respond with police, and which like set the cycle motion. When you respond with the police, and police start arresting kids or peacefully protesting for Black Studies curriculum, then you know the other kids are going to start throwing rocks, and then more police come in, and so. Um, and you know, in 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 a number of the incidents that I that I discuss in the book, I mean, these rebellions end up in the um, the, sh- the the shooting death of black students by police officers. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, schools schools then and now are have been a really important site of rebellion. But the other, you know, I, I also encourage us to think about you know this moment too as being. The, the kind of origins of the school to prison pipeline that I discussed today and the increased reliance on police within mm-hmm. schools to resolve matters that, um, that, that, that mm-hmm. would be much better suited and much more safely suited, uh, to be handled by school administrators, um, and, and, and other authorities, not uniformed officers with guns and billy clubs.
0: hmm Right. Exactly. Um, and, um in the wake of many of these rebellions uh you expose the state and local commissions that were tasked with investigating them as ineffective um after proposing soft solutions that are rooted in these liberal and conservative pathologies about black people and black communities um all the while presenting the police as these infallible um as these infallible actors um and this is um Another kind of, I guess, pillar that we read about when we're thinking, when we see, when we read about the death of Cai- of Cairo. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that, the commissions, um, and what re- what you want readers to take away um, from those type of investigative uh I guess, committees.
1: Yeah. So, the, I mean, the most famous of which, of course, is the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders or the Kerner Commission that Johnson called during the uh, the Detroit Rebellion in 67. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they, are, of course, also fo- follow this kind of pattern where, you know, from the Kerner Commission on down, following rebellion, a group of, uh, you know, a liberal commission would come in and investigate the causes. And like the, the Kerner Commission, um, you know, identified the structural factors the lack of um, housing, uh, educational opportunities, jobs um, in these communities that were the root causes of rebellion, and and yet the you know at the the, the end result is always always ends up being the recommendations around police reform. Um, so you know, I, part of part of the emphasis here is on. The kind of limits uh, of liberal social policy, the ways in which the commissions themselves, including the coroner commission, um, pathologized Black rebellion, but also the the kind of missed opportunity where, you know, here here were moments where all of the or not all, but many of the um, socioeconomic root causes were identified, um, mm-hmm. and and yet, uh, you know, these root causes. Were not addressed consistently across, you know, right. nationally by the, you know, by the Kerner Commission, but also, um, you know, across mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 cities where rebellions occurred. So, you know, this this shows us that like there, it's it's just another missed opportunity, and also, you know, emphasizes the ways in which alternatives beyond the police and surveillance and the expansion of the prison system were consistently presented. To mm. policymakers at all levels of government. And yet, you know, the response to this political protest is always, you know, policing, is always better policing, is always um, the reform of the police department, is always a, a symbolic community relations unit, is always calls for better training. I mean, it's the same thing that we are still seeing today. And so part of this history of these commissions just underscores that we. Must move beyond police reform. That police reform is not going to be enough to prevent police killings or rebellions or, you know, the fundamental inequalities that structure American society in the future. Um, and you know, the last thing we need is another commission to, mm-hmm. to investigate what happened. I mean, I think you know, at this point, um, these types of commissions are um, are are just stalling tactics because by the time, you know, recommendations are produced, it's sometime mm-hmm. later and it, it's easy for authorities to ignore them or not act, but they're but they're there symbolically as a way to appear as if action was taken.
0: Right. Yeah, there's stalling tactics that come at a tremendous cost. Exactly. And um, yeah, and they shut down alternate kind of like ideas. Alternate yeah. ideas don't have breathing room. Um So let's talk about the second half of the book, which moves us more towards um, the late 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. Um, And this part um, looks at three major Black rebellions in American history. Um, Miami, 1979, surrounding the police murder of Arthur Arthur McDuffie, um, L.A. 92, uh, the police beating of of Rodney King um, and the gang proposal to rebuild the city and uh 2001 Cincinnati so can you tell us about how some of the origins that you establish in the first half of the book reveal themselves as legacies in the second half
1: mm-hmm. so there's one so you know I, I think for, for whatever I, I think this is this is like part of the question you know rebellion begins to decline um in you know in the mid 70s and I think part of this has to do with you know, expanded political representation uh, for for Black people, you know, again, whereas in the late 60s and mm. early 70s, um, people didn't see themselves in government. And by, you know, like 1971, the Congressional Black Caucus forms as a result of, you know, the, the, this younger generation now being a voting age and the voter registration drives the civil rights movement, we get the, the you know the largest push in black representation at all levels of government um, since Reconstruction. So I think that helped. Um, I also think that you know that mass incarceration, the rise of mass incarceration itself, of course, by the mid nineteen seventies, the prison population has tra- has transitioned from being majority white to being majority black and brown for the first time in U.S. history, and just the um, the you know, general, the the stakes of rebellion and getting arrests and all of the draconian sentencing provisions that are being enacted at the, the at again at all levels, um, um, you know, make the stakes of rebellion itself um, even higher. And you know, the the young people who uh, had previously steered rebellion are increasingly finding themselves um, locked up. So I think right. that's part of it, and and that you know, the policing of ordinary and everyday activity um, that was, you know, contested um, so forcefully in the late 60s and early 70s had become bitterly accepted as just part of, 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 of everyday life in, in, in targeted low-income communities of color. And so beginning with Miami in 1980 and for the remainder of the 20th century and today, you know, rebellion begins to occur in response to exceptional incidents of police violence or miscarriages of justice. So, you know, Miami in 80 and, and L.A. in 1992 are not in response to, uh, you know, the, the, the killing of, um, of Arthur McDuffie itself or the, um, the beating of Rodney King, the first viral video, but the acquittal of the groups of officers, um, for those acts of police violence the perceived miscarriage of justice and of course mm-hmm. these rebellions are not just about that incident but about and you know this is just, I discuss this in the book but about a series of injustices and 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 forms of police violence experienced in the everyday over time that somehow just kind of coalesce through um through a moment i mean we similar to what we saw um with, with, with George Floyd in, uh, in, in 2020 um, and Cincinnati, you know, also in 2001, which I see as really a, a transition from the the kind of um, late 20th century rebellions to what we began to witness in Ferguson in the 21st century. But it um, mm-hmm. happened in, you know, after um, a 20 year old black man named Timothy Thomas was killed by a Cincinnati police officer. And Thomas was the 15th, uh, black man to be killed by the Cincinnati police department in a five-year period. And, you know, the lack of accountability for his, um, his, his egregious and blatant murder, blatantly unjust murder, um, tragic murder just, you know, brought the community, uh, to a tipping point.
0: mm mm-hmm. Um, well, I want to ask you about the conclusion, Um, It brings us to the murder, the police murder of George Floyd last summer and the 2020 uprising against policing in which the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter activists advanced calls for police defunding and abolition over reform. And in your opinion, what is the import and potential efficacy of these solutions? And in this regard, what can we learn from your book about the paths not taken?
1: yeah, so I mean, I, I really hope that my um that my book can can help contribute to these discussions. I mean, I think both the books, I mean, one of the things that that my research shows is that you know embracing police and surveillance and incarceration as the policy response to manage um the material manifestations of poverty and racial inequality as they appear through crime and social harm or violence, has been one of the biggest domestic policy failures of the late 20th century. I mean, or maybe even um, of the in, in the history of the of the United States. Um mm-hmm. you know, investing in, in the carceral state at the expense of social welfare programs, jobs, educational opportunity, access to decent housing um, has not worked to keep our most vulnerable communities safe. It has Created dynamics where, uh, where police officers and the residents that they are um, charged with patrolling both um, see each other as the enemy, which leaves communities um, and officers themselves less safe. Um, and we know that you know alternatives to policing are much more effective at fostering public safety and and uh, and are much cheaper. Than, um, than locking somebody up and throwing and warehousing them in um, in prison. So I think you know this summer, these failed policies and the the just undemocratic um, and racist undertones through which they um, unfold on the ground and through which they are uh, they they've been developed is just has been is just intolerable. I think especially. For again, a rising generation of young people who want to see a different kind of governance, um, who mm-hmm. want who want U.S. institutions to govern according to the principle of equality rather than exclusion um, and 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 inequality, and who are saying, you know, and this is like essentially what defund is about, and it's what the Kerner Commission was advocating for. Like, we need a different set of investments. Poli- you know, the the kind of continued reliance on police hasn't worked. Um, and I think you know, my work in part um, helps to underscore that and helps draw our attention to, you know, the fact that this form of of violent protest, as it emerges, is not something that should be seen or treated as criminal, but something that needs to be seriously contended with, and will help draw us to more effective and more equitable equitable solutions, and you know. In transforming socioeconomic conditions,
0: yeah, for sure. said said really well. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, would you I have one more question for you before we go. Um, would you like to share with our listeners what you are working on now or highlight any projects or organizations that you're working with today?
1: So I, let me, I, I guess I'll, I'll try to be really brief and answer both. I mean, let me d- first say that I think in, in in thinking about alternatives to public safety, um, you know, any approach needs to be community based. I think, you know, one thing that's that's becoming increasingly clear and that like the most innovative public safety measures that are being implemented across the country, especially in low income communities of color are entirely um, uh you know, based within the community. They don't involve police. They involve alternatives to police. They involve mutual aid societies. They involve um, support groups for for crime survivors. They involve um, different kinds of block watches where, you know, neighborhoods are and, and neighbors are keeping themselves um, safe and protecting each other rather than relying on the police to do so, rather than relying on an outside officer with a gun. I'm thinking about um, groups like the Oakland Power projects which um, stems out of the abolitionist organization critical resistance I'm really inspired by the work of advanced peace um, which mm-hmm. is rapidly expanding but um, originally based in Richmond California and founded by Devon Bogan which which you know basically um, empowers people who have previously been incarcerated or involved in um, in 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 violent activity in their communities to, um, to work directly with young people who are vulnerable to getting shot or shooting others. Um, Mm. and, you know, especially when it comes to gun violence, we know that police, um, often exacerbate gun violence. And this is a problem in our communities that, um, I think can and should be best handled by community members themselves, especially community members who have experienced, um, you know, gun violence firsthand. Um, and, and I guess that kind of brings me to what I'm working on now, which is, um, you know, this book, I think um, helps lay the groundwork to get to the larger question of trying to historicize um, group violence in the, in the late 20th century, especially in low-income communities of color. And, you know, I think the big question is, you know, how did this form of collective violence in Black communities that was once expressed against external forces that was once against once expressed against the police beginning in the mid-1970s turn internal, um, you know, turn into a collective violence that took the form of um, so-called gang warfare, where we see things like drive-by shootings um, mm. emerge and the flourishing of the underground economy. And I think these questions about crime and violence are just so vital for historians' to take-up. Historians have not really... Um, examined these issues. We haven't treated things like drive-by shootings as a, you know, distinct historical phenomenon. They've been treated in the existing literature as pathological. Um, And so, you know, America on Fire, and my first book too, are, you know, my first book in laying out the kind of process of criminalization, America on Fire, in laying out the, um, the, the, the kind of collective external violence against state forces. Then Oh, you know, allows us to properly, or allows me to properly begin to historicize. Then, um, you know, what happened when, that, um, and the process through which that collective external violence turned internal.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a most necessary um, and important project. Um, so, thank you for sharing that with us, and I hope that we can get you back on the show to talk about it when, when the time is right. Um, <laughs> I would love to. But for now. Yeah. For now, Dr. Hinton, I want to thank you for um, being on the show today and for speaking with us about America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and Black rebellions since the 1960s.
1: Thank you so much, Amanda. It was great talking to you. And I appreciate you engaging my work so deeply. My
0: pleasure.